You're listening to the Technician Academy podcast. This episode is powered by Premium Guard Filters. Check out their first-to-market coverage by visiting pgfilters.com. If it's your first time tuning in, welcome. We really hope that you enjoy the discussion. And to our frequent listeners and subscribers, welcome back. Every other week, our host, Richard Young, takes you behind the scenes with prevalent industry thought leaders and the industry thought leaders of tomorrow who share their industry knowledge and explain how both the technicians of today and tomorrow are being affected. In this episode, you'll hear from Matt Fonslow. He's the diagnostic technician and shop manager at Riverside Automotive in Red Wing, Minnesota. Fonslow specializes in providing advanced DSO training to current auto techs. He strives to do everything in his power to improve the overall image of the automotive industry. In this podcast, Matt and Richard discuss ways of positively influencing the current technician shortages and how valuable it is to provide the technicians of tomorrow with visual career paths. We hope that you enjoy this episode of Technician Academy's podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our channels and rate us on iTunes. And we're always open to suggestions and comments. So if there is someone that you would like to hear from, or if you would like to join in on the discussion, freely contact us via email, phone, or even our social media pages. Again, thank you for tuning in. Here's your host. Welcome to today's Technician Academy podcast. Today we're fortunate enough to have Matt Fonslow with us today. He is the Diagnostic Technician and Shop Manager at Riverside Automotive. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, I, you know, I, I searched you out, uh, you know, and I know you're well known in the industry. Uh, you've been on several podcasts and, and interviews and, and, and I searched you out because I believe you bring a perspective that my listeners need to hear. I think that's extremely important. So, uh, you're at Riverside Automotive, shop manager. Give us a little bit of rundown about your history in the industry. Well, I mean, before I was in the industry, my uh, grandfather uh, owned and operated a farm implement dealership that they sold and serviced uh, Massey Ferguson uh, tractors and equipment along with uh, New Holland. And then uh, they also handled uh, chainsaws, like forestry and garden type stuff. So um, steel, Husqvarna, and Johnsrud were the products. And uh, I would spend, as I got older, uh, probably middle school on up, just before becoming a teenager, I would spend more and more of of my time up there and... Um, as I got older and more capable, the uh, they kind of phased out of the farm implement side of things. So the concentration more was on the like chainsaws, trimmers, blowers, stuff like that, leaf blowers. And uh, so I spent a lot of time up there after school almost every day. And uh, my goal was to be as good at it as my father was. And then. You know, he they got out of the uh, farm implement dealership uh, altogether, and uh, so there wasn't really a, a future in that because if he'd have stayed in that, I might be sitting in a field with a laptop, 
connected to a tractor rather than sitting in a repair shop with a laptop connected to a car. And uh, so kind of took the automotive program, uh, automotive technology program at a local tech college, kind of almost as something to fall back on. But first day of school, got a tour of the shop, and there was a, a scan tool sitting there. And immediately my interest was piqued. And uh, that's a lot of where my focus was. And I graduated that in two years. And then uh, luckily, Minnesota had a third-year program uh, put on um, by one college about three hours away uh, that strictly dealt with electrical uh, drivability diagnostics. Uh, so I went up there and took that, and that was pretty life-changing. That was one of those big life-changing things. Uh, one year just very much focused on uh, learning electricity and learning, I guess, in the long, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, learning more about critical thinking and learning how to learn, learning how to data mine and maybe process data, observe and process data. It was very, very helpful. Uh, that program is no longer there, but I think uh, the success of that program, uh, especially in like my case and um, many of the alumni's case, would support uh, our, in general, automotive program starting to you know, go beyond two years whether that's three, four, you know, some might even argue five, six. Uh, and that, that was the big thing. And then I got into uh, an independent repair shop where very quickly I was just kind of given all the diagnostics. Uh, there was kind of one specific day I remember that was kind of ended my career of uh, R&R work where um, – I was working on an evaporator on a, um, like an old 98. And this is uh, probably in the late, the, the vintage of the car was probably in the mid to late 80s. So the evaporator you accessed from the engine compartment. And uh, I was working on that. And then a couple of days over, two techs were working on a, also probably in the 80s Regal and a late 80s Tempo. So this would have been Cicera 98, 99 maybe. <clears throat> and the Regal had no brake lights. And the Tempo, the charging system was not working. The alternator was not working. So the Tempo got two alternators. And the Regal got a brake light switch, all new bulbs in the back. And they still didn't work. So my boss at the time told me, and the other two techs to change places. They could take team the evaporator. I would explain where I was, and then I would go look at these two cars. And in about 15 minutes, I figured out the Regal needed a turn signal switch. So the brake, when you press the brake pedal, um, voltage went through the, or current really, went through the brake light switch, then through the turn signals to get distributed to the rear lights. Uh, the turn signal switch to the rear lights bulbs, and then 
um, maybe a half an hour later, I had figured, found a broken wire up on the, uh, I think it was the right front strut tower that fed the alternator. And that was that was really probably the last day I did much for R and R work. Kind of made the made the switch then to to technical electrical diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. I would figure it out, and somebody else in the shop would uh, do the uh, repair, take it apart, put it back together, depending on what it was. You know, I would do sensors and stuff like that. But you know, if I diagnosed uh, you know a burnt valve or timing issue like engine uh, cam crank correlation jump timing belt uh, loose timing chain somebody else was taking it apart and putting that stuff together because I had more cars to figure out what was wrong and so I mean doing that in that era I challenged to say that that was easier than working on today's vehicles because, I mean, a lot of people would look at that and think, oh, you know, the technology on today's vehicles compared to the technology back then. How do you feel about that? Is is the technology today helping us as technicians diagnose or, I mean, because we have a lot more resources, I, I guess. I'm Absolutely. Getting, I mean, the resources yeah. we have today far outweigh what we had back then. I mean, yeah. It's it's a double-edged sword, right? <clears throat> Back in the day, things maybe were arguably less complex, but we also had much less data available to us from the car, or that data was very, very slow. So, you know, doing a throttle position sensor sweep with a scan tool, okay? You know, we're not doing this with a, a scope, just with a scan tool sitting in the driver's seat, and you'd push your foot to the floor. A lot of times it would take you know, a second, two seconds for the scan tool to show a change. Or there was no misfire codes. You know, it there was nothing pointing you towards cylinder number three. It came in with a misfire, the check engine light may or may not be on, and you had to figure out, A, which cylinder was misfiring and then why. I'm not saying that was difficult or not, but it wasn't pulling a code or looking at a scan, looking at scan data, and going, okay, it's most likely on this cylinder. I'm going to start there. Um, there's a lot of stuff we can do from the driver's seat nowadays, you know, and have very good idea what's wrong with the vehicle. Uh, just sitting in the driver's seat, looking at the vast amount of data, and then how quickly that data updates and makes it much more usable to us. Uh, back in the day, you know, we had other ways of getting uh, to the issue that nowadays. You know, it just the, the systems don't lend themselves to that. You know, and then ignition scope was a very, very important item to have in your shop, uh, or some kind of a scope set up specifically for ignition. And you know, a, a uh, you know big box analyzer or an ignition style scope designed to look at ignition was very, very helpful in pinpointing problems very quickly. Um, which cylinder was misfiring, and in some cases even why, or you had a pretty good idea why. Uh, the way ignition systems are laid out now, not, you know, it's not as accessible or what we need to access to look at it the same way we did years and years ago. Uh, it doesn't work so hot. And with Technician Academy, we, we go to several community colleges, and I just finished up at community college uh, two days ago, and I was doing a DSO course, and, and, and I've got a picture through the course, I've got a picture of an old bear scope. 
leads hanging off the top of it and just a monstrosities of a, of a device and then i've got the picoscope sitting there in the classroom and you know and i explained to the students that in that day that that was introduced that was a very valuable piece of extremely of, of equipment and what it could do was amazing but it cost thirty five thousand dollars where today you know you you can buy a pico scope or, or a lot of scopes i'm not just talking about pico but you you get a pico scope and and you can get a scan tool for pennies on the dollar compared to that thirty five thousand dollars scope the oscilloscope back then and we have a lot more abilities with what we can get today i think they're still required just like or needed like they were back then but it's different it's it's different components different abilities that we have and and you're very true very true about that yeah i think back and you know it's not so much you know it's not so much like i was not in the industry in the 80s uh i wasn't really in the industry until really the late 90s and the beginning of the 2000s. But the vehicles in the bay, you know, when you're working in an independent shop, the vehicles in the bay were from the 80s. Um, But an ignition scope like that, many times that was the first piece of equipment you put on the car. Now you would never do that. It's always going to be the scan tool. Scan tool is the first thing that goes on the car. So we're, we're using this equipment differently. You know, in the case of at least a lab scope or a uh, digital storage oscilloscope, it's very much still a necessity. I think we just go to it at a different step in our process. Yeah, what bothers me is I've had the opportunity to put on training for uh, today's technicians, and, and, and I, I don't mean anything bad by this, but the last part of the course that I was putting on, it was a fuels course, and I was talking about using a DSO to help diagnose a fuel pump and i would ask have a room of 20 technicians that were working in the bay i would ask them you know how many of you have a lab scope in the in the shop maybe 10 of them would raise their hand and then i would ask how many of them how many of those lab scopes has fingerprints on them and how many of them has dust and you know out of that 10 there may be two that raised their hand that says they had fingerprints on them where they're being used and that to me was just i just and that's been two, three, well, it's been four years ago now. But I I was just astounded by that because of the abilities that we can use or have by using the tools that's available to us. Yeah, I I think my feeling about that is that the reason that we have this situation is, you know, and I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying, there's probably more to it. But for one is, uh, depending on where they work, uh, how they're compensated, plays a part. Um, if speed rules, get the car in, get it figured out, sell the work, put the parts on, maybe figure it out again, put more parts on it and get it out the door, that pays way, way, way better to the technician and arguably to the shop since it's not so fair or good for the um, vehicle owner, but that pays better than bring it in, spend some time working through a process, and I'm not saying that it has to be a very, you know, like a flow chart type process, but a diagnostic process, that doesn't pay as well. You know, working through that process, pinpointing an issue, and then selling the work, fixing it once the right way, and sending it out the door. That would be the best case scenario, honestly, but, you know, 
how either the the pay scheme used by the shop or uh, how they sell to clients um, affects that. Plus, you know, over the many many decades, last few decades, as an industry, as a as a trade, we have done a very 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 wonderful job, and I use the word wonderful quite sarcastically. Wonderful job of devaluing uh, our services, our skills, the diagnostic process, you know, the analysis portion of figuring out what is wrong with the car. You know, when I call this part, when I say it needs this part, I have very, very, very good reason to believe it's this part. Not because the last, you know, the last blue car I worked on had this problem, so it probably was wrong or because I went to an online database, or I Googled it, and, oh, this is a pretty common problem, and put it on. It's because, you know, I went through a process. I did this, I did that, I checked this, I checked that, I inspected this. I have every reason to believe that this will fix the car and then be successful. There's a lot of value to that, and we just don't do a very good job of conveying that value to the client. And if we do, you know, shop A does work to do that, provide value, sell value to the client, sell the one repair, you know, and the proper repair and successfully fix the vehicle. Shop B, C, D, and E oftentimes uh, are there the other way where um, they don't charge diagnostic time or they, um, have much lower rates or, um, you know, just use more of the database type diagnostics. Yeah. And, and I, I have mixed feelings about that. You know, that you mentioned database diagnostics and, and, and there's, and I'm not going to name any organizations, but I mean, there's a huge amount of information out there. Absolutely. And that's, that stuff when it came out was helpful there, you know, saw a need, filled a need, the database in it of itself is not evil or bad. No, absolutely not. But human nature, being the way it is, very much like electricity, always trying to find the path of least resistance, becomes, if I'm paid to be fast, it's quicker for me to go to this database, find the common problem, throw it at the car, and probably be right well over half the time. Oh, yeah, yes. That makes more, you know, now that makes more financial, uh, sorry, makes more financial sense to the tech than it does to be like, okay, these are a common problem. I'm going to build this into my process, though. I'm going to go check this because it's common, but I want to make sure. Do some tests that lead you up to that part or that component or that repair, whatever it may be, and... Now being able to go to the client, go to the service advisor to go to the client and say, okay, this is why I think this is what is wrong. A, it is a common problem. B, I tested it. I took my scope. I took my meter. I took a test light. I took whatever the uh, piece of equipment was, and I can kind of verify this is what I think. And uh, here's a printout showing you why, and I circled the spot of interest. Uh, and then the service advisor then could take that and sell that with value, saying, okay, look at what he did. I'll email you a, a capture of this. He circled the area that bothers him. Client doesn't need to know what it means, but they can see 
whoever's on the other end probably knows what they're doing. It, it gives depth to the diagnosis, you might say. I mean, it, it yeah, gives I mean, some, some quantitative proof that this is what the professional in, in, in your situation has diagnosed. And uh, I, I attribute it to similarity of uh, a doctor. A doctor, a lot of the time, can, can I, they'll say, well, I believe it's this, but we need to do an MRI. Or, or whatever type of test to confirm my beliefs. And I, I attribute it to the very similar, I mean, obviously we're not working with someone's life, but I, I challenge that too, because we could be. We're, right. But I think the, the parallels, you know, it's, it's rough to compare us to doctors because you have the, the life thing. You have a, a human life involved and the, you know, value of a human life, stuff like that. I, I, that makes it rough to make the comparison, but the symptom, uh, di- you know, diagnostic process, analyzing data, doing this test and this test, the results drive you towards maybe this test and this test, which drives you to a diagnosis. That is that runs very very much in line with a doctor. We have a lot in common. Yeah, I mean, and. That's the that's the thing I see in common is you know a doctor may have to do four or five tests to to confirm his belief or or disprove what he believes it is and as technicians we have to do that too we have to absolutely do those tests and either confirm and none of us I challenge anyone that says they can diagnose the car right the first time every time uh, because there are some abnormalities that sometimes we can not catch unless we do all the testing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you trust your tests and uh, you follow that. You're going to hit a lot. Are you going to get burned? Of course, everybody does. Um, But whether you uh, did the test wrong, uh, you know, interpreted the data incorrectly, uh, or you fixed an absolutely legitimate problem. It just wasn't the one causing the concern you were after. Or it didn't have as much effect on the concern as you were hoping. That happens too. You know, whatever you, you might actually figure, repair something legitimately, it just actually didn't take care of the concern that you were aiming to take care of. And and the importance of having, I mean, I, I mentioned PicoScope earlier, but the importance of having test equipment that is dependable. I see so many, uh, I've been in the several repair shops over the years and, you know, and they're, they've got their test equipment and it may have been the best that was available the day they bought it, but it's right, sitting over right. on top of a toolbox and it's got grease hanging on it. And, you know, some of the wires on the, on the leads are, are either bare or, or you know, the insulation's uh, pulled away from the lead. And okay, is this was the best tool that you had that day, but are you truly following and, and updating the equipment to keep up with the car? I, I think that's extremely important. I mean, you, sure. you can speak to that. I mean, you at one time, uh, and I believe you still do some training uh, on Pico scopes, you know, an oscilloscope. Let's just take the brand name out of it. A very nice oscilloscope. And being able to explain the value of that tool. Uh, do you see any pushback from the industry as far as in the bay technicians when you start talking about that value? The, the only pushback really is that it requires time to learn. You know, so if we're, we're going to talk specifically about just oscilloscopes 
there's kind of you know off the cuff there's that I can think of there's three real phases or three legs of the stool one is um the what button does what you know to use a term that I you know I think I picked up from a friend of mine Harvey Chan buttonology what button does what if I press this what happens or how do I get the scope to do this then you have actually connecting it to the car so reading a wiring schematic um, you know what am I going to use a test lead am I going to use a probe like an inductive current clamp um, how am I going to access what I need and then probably the big one is now that I've got this pattern on my screen what does it mean? And, you know, some of that, the some of the uh, waveforms you're going to look at, if you kind of understand the circuit, you can kind of get the gist of if it's doing what you would expect. You know, if you pick on a, a simple uh, circuit like a throttle position sensor, you know looking at a wiring schematic, it's getting five volts. And... When you hook up to that signal wire, you would expect it to be somewhere between zero and five volts. And then you might have read somewhere or heard in class or heard in a class or read in a trade magazine that if it's at zero or at five volts, it's bad. You know, that's kind of a test of itself. If it's zero volts, it might be open or shorted to ground. If it's at five volts, it's either open or shorted the voltage or something of that nature. So it would set a code. Then when you start pressing on the pedal, you would see that voltage, you know, go low to high, you know, maybe under a volt to just over four volts. And when you let off, it goes back down. That would be not unexpected. And you can kind of do that with a lot of the signals you're looking at. You kind of know what to expect looking at the wiring schematic. I think where the real daunting stuff comes in is when you start doing a lot of comparisons. And if you're looking at a, a crankshaft versus a camshaft sensor, and you can look and say, okay, I know these are hall effects. I know they receive 12 volts. Oh, I got 12 volt square waves. I got fairly sharp edges. So the sensors are probably good. But now the alignment between the two, that's not something you're going to find in a you know, manufacturer's service information, that's what you find hooking up to good cars and building up your own database. And that's the real pain. Not very many shop owners pay their text to grab a car and, you know, hook up a scope and quick grab a couple of waveforms that could come in very, very, very handy in the future. Yeah, and that's something that when, I, when I'm talking, because the DSO class we present, it, it's to community college students, and it's very ba basic. It's, you know, basically talking about the pieces of the scope, uh, you know, the main foundational pieces of voltage and time, and, and how to use them, and, and then develops into how to use a trigger and what it's what it's doing. But that's what I tell the students. I said, you know, you're, work, you're at a facility, and some of these facilities may have to the students access 20 or 30 scopes and you know i tell them i said go out hook up to a car that's working right that's functioning properly and just get a feel because if you're in this industry and you know as well as i do you you've been around enough guys that you just have the feel of what it should be doing and then 
by looking at the scope and looking at the schematic and your foundational knowledge of, okay, this is a sensor, this operates at five volts or, or, you know, 12 volt or, you know, depending on what you're working on, you're able to get an idea of what's going on. And, and I tell them that, just go out and hook it up. Just put your hands on it. Yep, I can't agree more. The, the students, and it, it is great, uh, I will say this, George and Carlos at AES Wave have, have helped us present the training to these students, so they've got a, a one-channel scope in their hand. And as soon as I turn, have them turn it on, we, we spend a little bit of time at the beginning of class, but as soon as I turn it on, you know, we're talking about college students that have had technology in their hands their entire life. And as soon as I turn it on and start sending a, a waveform down the harness, they're all over it. I mean, they just, they consume it. And, uh, you know, they get excited about it. So that's, you know, I know that those students, the ones that especially get excited about it, they're going to they're gonna go out and they're going to mess with that scope. And I think that's extremely important. You know, when I talked earlier about the technicians that's in the bay, they didn't have that. Uh, you know, it wasn't, technology wasn't in front of them all the time. So, you know, we're talking about technicians, and, and I, if you don't mind, I, you know, I went on LinkedIn and looked at your profile, and, you know, one of the things you said, and, and I'm going to talk, I want to talk about it, is the technician shortage. Now, you don't necessarily call that out directly, but the technician shortage, we've been hearing about this. I'm sure you've been hearing about it since you've been in the industry, uh, probably from the beginning. How do you feel where, where are we at in that technician shortage? Are we at a, at a plateau, or are we at the edge of the cliff getting ready to step over? I'm think I got a feeling it's more towards the latter. Um, it's probably worse than we think it is. Um, the data the data does not support that we uh, that we're kind of plateauing. It's showing the average age of the technician continuing to increase, and worse yet, it is showing a very 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 high, alarmingly high attrition rate of uh, new technicians, and, you know, they're going to be predominantly young out of school, but um, new technicians, about a 50%, I think, 50% attrition rate within the first year, that means they leave. They go do something else. Um, that's not good. I, I mean, that's, that's we're at a technician shortage, and I suppose if we want to be even more accurate, the... Uh, qualified technician shortage. Uh, people that are, you know, there's probably no uh, shortage of warm bodies, but there's a huge shortage of warm bodies that you want in that bay working on that car. I, I think you're, I think you, and, and I talk, say this all the time, uh, I don't believe we have a shortage of people who can turn a wrench. But I think there is a shortage of qualified technicians that have a passion to repair vehicles properly. I agree. Uh, there's a lot of parts hangers, and, and there's a lot of parts cannons that's used today. on. And a lot of that is <clears throat> the, the trade's own fault because that's what we reward. Um, you know, a lot of management-type magazines or resources, um, which I think are starting to change now. I think they're evolving I think they're getting a, more, a little more correct, but it's about the production shop. It's about your highest paid technicians are the ones who turn the most hours. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shops where, you know, and no offense, I guess I don't mean this quite as literally as it sounds, but 
the smartest technician or the, the, the diagnostic or the guy who does the hardest work, most difficult work, the most challenging work, often is not nearly the um, highest compensated tech. It's a lot of times the guys doing the quote-unquote gravy. Uh, they're the ones that get the big paychecks. So now why would you want to do this challenging? You know, you, you want to because it interests you, but your paycheck suffers. So now why would I want to do this? Because I really want to have, have things or be able to do things financially. This, is, this runs counter to it, so I think I'll just stay over here uh, and do this easy stuff and get a nice paycheck. Um, so the production shop model was very hurtful, where it was all about, you know, talking about guys running 120% productivity, meaning they work 40 hours and bill out 20% more. Um, and that's how the shop could make money. That's fundamentally broken, you know, especially when it's based on that. It's funny you say that. I was just in a meeting uh, last week with a, a fixed operations manager at a very large uh, conglomerate of dealerships. Uh, he's the fixed operation manager of three different lots. He, we got to talking about his technicians, and he, I said, so how's your, you know, your level of technician? He said, oh, we got, and he started talking about a guy, and he's, you know, this guy's master and master Toyota and master General Motors, and, you know, and, and he's a great technician. I said, yeah. I said, is he get you know, is he compensated pretty good? Yeah, you know, he's making, and, and he was making six digits, uh, high six digits. And I said, so what makes him so good? Well, he knows how to get stuff done quick. And I'm like, I mean, after the meeting, I had to back up and think, okay, and, and I should have asked more questions, but does that mean he gets the gravy jobs and, and turns them quick? Or is he really, really good at diagnosing every vehicle? And, you know, he's, he's turning the bay quick that way. So I, I think there's, if I was to guess, I'm going to say that he's quick at turning the jobs, easy jobs, uh, just knowing the dealership. So, you know, it is. It's a broken model. Uh, it's a broken model that's been broke for 30 years. Uh, maybe not quite that long, but, you know, for several years. Well, it's probably started there started there and worked its way and now is it's kind of falling apart um and you know don't get me wrong whoever you are are you have to be able to get stuff done in a reasonable amount of time uh but like i kind of like where we're going with this i really take issue with a very you know historically good technician great technician, whatever label, adjective we want to give them that's positive, who gets this water pump job that's supposed to take three hours. But for whatever reason, it took four. He's a really good tech. It took four hours. And he wasn't screwing around. He wasn't sitting on his cell phone. He wasn't checking his email. He was, it took a legitimate four hours. The shop needs to get compensated for four hours along with the technician because he knows what he's doing. He's a professional, yet that's oftentimes not the case. Ah, oh, well, you lost on this one. I'm sure you'll make it back. 
that makes no sense to me. No sense whatsoever. Somehow the the labor guide, the labor time guide, became the standard. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes it's you know, um, pretty spot on, or even a little um, uh, gracious with its times. But there's a lot of time, you know, especially in our area, the Rust Belt. It's not realistic, and therefore there's got to be open communication between the tech and the front service advisor about, you know, this is taking longer than it should, here's why, you know, discuss it with the client, um, and everybody needs to be compensated, and that's not necessarily the way it works. <laughs> well, and, and uh, you know, I, I've got some friends that are uh, medium-heavy truck technicians and, and agricultural technicians, and the way they're compensated is is... In, in the shops they work in is is that way i mean you you if it takes five hours to do the job it's five hours and uh you know and that industry the owners of those vehicles expect that and i i, I you made a statement there and i want to pull back to it a little bit when did the labor guide become the standard i think that's a dangerous uh cavity to get into when you accept that yeah, I mean, most jobs, if it's, or some jobs, I should say, if it's a two-hour job, a good technician that understands and knows what he's doing and, and can walk to the car with the tools he needs to do the job, uh, yeah, he can probably beat that hour, two hours. But, uh, you know, there are those jobs that it was only supposed to take four and it took six uh, because this boat broke. And, and especially in, in the environment you're in, the, the rust belt, you mentioned it. You know, there's no telling what's going to break and how many times, it's, how far down the line it's going to break. And, you know, like you're saying, you know, everybody was honest. Uh, you know, I, I'm guessing the fear with management or shop owners with that, um, if it takes this long, it takes this long, is <clears throat> um, technicians kind of slowing down on purpose, losing a little bit of motivation. And now everything is taking quite a bit longer. If they everybody just be honest and... You know, you're paying me to be here eight hours and work eight hours. When I show up and punch in, I'm working. And it's my uh, intent every day to do this job. And I, I want to be careful how I say as fast as possible, but under control, that the quality, you know, A number one is quality. When this leaves, it is in you know, as good or depending on what we're doing, most of the time I should say it's in better condition than when it came in. And I'm going to do it as, you know, as fast as reasonably reasonably possible. And if we have the labor guide there, a lot of times I'm going to be right there or even faster. But, you know, I'm not going to just, because if it takes me way longer than it's supposed to, and nobody cares that, well, now everything I do is going to take longer because, well, what's the, what's the rush? So I think everybody's just, you know, kind of got to have that little bit of worker mentality too, right? Yes, right. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And, and you mentioned something there. You said a word that I want to pull back to is professional professionalism it frustrates me and like i said i've had the opportunity and, and blessed to have it the opportunity to be in several different shops over the last 10 years 15 years and you can walk into a shop and you know what type of shop you're in i mean if it's a professional shop it just gives that 
image, uh, you know, and, and provides that. And their labor rate, a lot of times I find, their labor rate may be 5 $10 more than their competitor shop around the corner, but the competitor shop, you know, doesn't have that professionalism, doesn't treat the customer in the way that they should be treated. So we, we've got that dynamic going in. You know, you, you talked about attrition of young technicians. I, you know, we, we talk about the industry and we're talking about a lot of things here, but bringing them together, we take young technicians and we, we put them into an environment. They come out of a trade school or they've been in the industry for a short period of time. We put them into an environment that, first off, I don't think presents that professionalism and requires a lot from them. Yeah, I think like what we're talking about, how this all ties in, is the production shop mentality, um, the flat rate. Um, You've got to turn hours, maybe, you know, a turn and burn type mentality. We have a double-edged sword going on. Um, you got young people coming into that. When you're coming out of school, you're probably going to get put on the lube rack. You're probably going to handle, um, you know, the uh, C type of uh, C type level of uh, work, and you might feel like you get stranded there. And what I don't like about the system is. Hopefully, when you are there working, you're doing your best. You're trying to learn, asking questions. Um, you know, while not trying to be too too much of a pest, but just showing a good general attitude. The system doesn't reward uh, a veteran technician on the line looking and seeing the new guy or the new gal on the lube rack with a good attitude, and say, "Go over to the service manager." or the owner and say, you know what, I want to take so-and-so under my wing. They got a lot of promise. I want to show them the ropes. If they take time off of the car they're working on, they're losing money. Why would they do that? They don't have the time. They can't. I don't like that. I wish there was a better way, um, you know, prove yourself on the lube rack. Prove, prove Whether it's the lube rack or not, prove yourself doing whatever you're doing in the shop. And then we have, a, we have to have a better way of bringing them along. Um, and then the other thing, kind of going, you know, with the wages thing, in a good shop that the techs are well compensated, especially the, the veterans, when the, the new people in there are a little frustrated with what they're doing, little frustrated with their paychecks the veteran can go over there or can sit there at break or sit there on lunch and go you know what stick it out kid you know stick it out keep doing what you're doing you need to work on this you know you're a little slow on this or you've been beaten up a couple times on this so the next one try to do better we'll keep moving along and you know look at me I'm doing well for myself I'm I'm in a good place. This is a great place to work. This is a great industry. We're really missing that. We're missing what I think is like the light at the end of the tunnel. <clears throat> There's a lot of industries out there. When you come out of school, you don't get paid anything. You're an intern. You do it for free. Or you're paid very, very little. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. 
there's something very, very positive awaiting you if you're good, right? You can't just put your time in and boom, okay, it's all sunshine and rainbows. But if you show up and you, you know, put forth the effort, have the you know, good attitude, the right attitude, and are good, I mean, you know, are showing promise, getting better, then this industry, this trade, needs to work on providing that light at the end of the tunnel. And in a way, it starts with the veterans. we got to keep the veterans we have, because if we lose them, there's nobody to replace them. Keep the veterans, and then they become the advocate within the shop or within the industry. Now you have the veterans going, stick it out. This is a great place to work. This is a great job. This is a great industry to be in. You know, I know you're frustrated now, but believe me, once you get a few things figured out, once you get a little bit of polish on you, once you get some of that, you know, you're not so wet behind the ears or some of that green, you're going to get green the other way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some of this green off of you here, you're going to get more green over here because you're going to get taken care of. That's what we need more of. It's not, you know, I know there's been talk about increasing the uh, wages for kids coming out of school because they have, and it's not always kids, people coming out of school, they have the investment in their education, they have investment in tools. Um, The tool thing, I'm not sure which way that's going to go. If we're going to start seeing technicians required to invest less of their personal incomes in the tools required to do the jobs they've been hired to do, or even if they are, um, we're going to see compensation go up for the veterans because uh, we have this, we have somewhere positive to go, you know. I and I'm not against uh, the the new one coming in getting more money, but there's got to be a, a fair line where that new technician coming into the shop for them to invest twenty thousand or, or thirty thousand dollars in tools is just you you can't expect that in today's world. I would rather see, and maybe I'm crazy, but I would rather see some of that money, and, and you've hit on it some of that money going to those older techs to help them mentor that younger tech. I agree. Yeah. I I think that's definitely part of it. Um, You know, of course, if everybody could make more, that'd be great. Um, But I think the focus on uh, giving all the, or giving a lot of that money to the young people isn't as important as they're making it. Um, I'm not looking to, uh, shaft anyone over either, but I just feel very strongly that there's a lot of uh, other industries out there where there is a terrible investment in education. Um, I don't know offhand <laughs> any other industry that really requires um, its members to uh, invest so heavily in equipment to do the job they've been hired to do. Um, so that's kind of yeah, and and seems to be pretty much automotive repair only or yeah. mechanic only, I should say. Yeah, uh, repair. I mean, locally here where I'm at in the Midwest, manufacturing. We were just down the street from a Toyota manufacturing plant, and manufacturing sucks up the automotive students that go through a lot of the programs here locally. And, and it's usually after that student has went out into the industry and talking to shop owners that I know here that. Students been out in the industry and and they've th- realized that 
uh, you know, I'm not making a lot of money here and I really need my own set of tools because nobody's willing to let me borrow a wrench out of their toolbox very, very easily. So I need my own tools. Well, then they get to looking and, and in the, the one ads and there's a manufacturing job that's paying two or three dollars more an hour than what they're making in the bay and it just pulls them away uh you know one thing in chris chesney he was at vision last year i believe it was and done a keynote speech and he talked about career paths and i in tech force foundation they talk about career paths i think we need to show these young technicians a career path i agree i i can't agree more be there to help them go along and and we've been really focused on the actual repair technician in the bay type of angle, but there is many, many, many things to do in this industry. You know, from service advising, <clears throat> managing uh, parts, you know, parts department. There, there is a lot of different things to do. Um, but just sticking strictly to the technician in the bay, I, I just believe wholeheartedly uh, we can make the biggest impact when you can make your own members of the industry, advocates for the industry. Um, when they're unhappy, uh, especially when they're uh, really, I think the last few years we're seeing more and more getting sniped uh, by other industries, uh, manufacturing, um, heavy, heavy duty, medium heavy duty, agriculture. They're going where the talent is. And when you have disgruntled people that have the skill set, and I would say even in many cases, um, these industries that are picking our guys up, or I should say our people up, uh, the techs, the the, the skill set they're requesting from the techs is only a small portion of the total skill set, and they're going on and doing quite a bit better for themselves and then if they really miss working on cars, they're doing it for fun in their garage at home. You know, they're putting a hoist in at home. Yeah, exactly. And they're able to spend that extra money that they're making on, on something on their vehicle. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that all the time. And this industry hasn't been very good. Uh, and and I point the finger at myself I, being in the industry as long as I have. We've not been very good at providing a professional image to the car owner. And, and that goes back to if we don't provide that professional image to the car owner is that car owner willing to pay that extra ten dollars per hour or twenty dollars per hour labor rate no uh you know they don't question i have yet to hear anybody question and going back to the doctor comparison i've never asked my doctor how much he makes an hour and kind of uh piggybacking on that uh another comparison uh, of doctors to mechanics or uh the medical industry to the auto repair trade uh something that we really should have started adopting more is have you ever really heard a doctor or medical professional throw another medical professional under the bus i mean have you ever went to a or known somebody that went to a uh one you know medical provider you know maybe they're linked up with mayo had a bad experience and then went to a different medical provider that's maybe linked up with John Hopkins and the doctor or professional with John Hopkins telling the client like, Oh, those guys at Mayo, they don't know what they're doing. 
The guys at Mayo, they're all the guys that couldn't hack it here at the just John Hopkins. You would never hear that. You would never, ever, ever hear that. But uh, this trade is actually pretty horrible about doing that to one another where, you know, I just had my car over at Shop A. You know, I gave them about $1,000 to fix my problem, and I don't think they took care of it. Well, those guys are, you know, they're rip-off artists is what they are. Yeah, this happens a lot. Yeah, we we are, and, and you're getting ready. I mean, you're, you're stepping in a topic that I could passionately talk about for the next 30, 45 minutes. But, uh, you know, we are an industry that is that will eat themselves. I mean, we continually do that, and I've seen it happen. I've experienced it. I've had customers that's experienced it. It is not good for the entire industry. No, it, it's horrible. They don't <clears> – <throat> there might be an immediate – positive benefit for the facility or person throwing the other facility or person under the bus but long term grand scheme of things it is a hundred percent counterproductive it's uh, it has a negative effect as a whole i i don't understand it why we keep doing it uh, you will never i'll never figure it out i wish i could figure it out i don't know why i uh, wish somebody I could find the answer yes and a lot of stuff we've been talking about has been kind of doom and gloom, and I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. There is a lot of really great things about doing this for a living, and I really, really feel there's a lot of entities out there that are helping make very positive changes. You know, Remarkable Results of that biz is one of them. You are another one. Um, a lot of training um, Tech Force Foundation. Uh, providers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. They are making great strides in improving not just the image of the industry, but improving the people in the industry to help improve the image of the industry. Yeah. I mean, and I can name individuals, you know, uh, I mentioned George and Carlos Minshew, uh, you know, uh, Very you, much top of the list. Brandon Steckler, yeah. uh, Jim Morton. I mean, there's just so many names out there that wholeheartedly want the industry to survive and are examples, shining examples of what it can be. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. We, we've talked a little bit of doom and gloom, and but this is an industry. Have you ever been associated with any industry where it is more relationships than this one? No, no, not no, at all. No, and I challenge anyone to, to, to bring an industry that is more relationship-based than the automotive industry. I mean... And if you, if you crave variety, rarely do you have uh, the same thing twice in a row, much less the same day as the same as the day before. Absolutely rare. Rarely ever happens. And then instant gratification. I don't know as many... I don't know that many um, careers that give you such... Uh, instant gratification as uh, auto repair and whether it's the gratification of solving this puzzle solving this mystery or taking something that was broken and making it like new uh, or putting a smile on someone's face uh, I really don't know many others that allow you that uh, like this one does. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the instant gratification, the being able to provide a a, a solution to a problem that, that a customer has been having to deal with is instant gratification. And, you know, we, we've talked here, I've uh, taken up quite a bit of your time and, and I hope in the future we'll have another podcast and, and go on further, but 
Yeah, anytime. One of the things I, I I want to get from you is if I was to put you in front of a class and and high school class of let's say 200 graduating high school students and, and you were to talk to them and not necessarily directly about the automotive industry but with your experience obviously that would be the topic you might le- lean towards what would what would be your advice to them uh in in general i mean not even uh automotive trade uh focused but i i think my advice is to um, first find out fundamentally what is it that makes you tick. Uh, I feel like m- at my core, I like to, n- I want to know how things work. And then I want to know, I want to solve mysteries. I want to solve puzzles. I-, I like trying to figure out something, um, whatever it may be. That's what feeds me within this industry. So my passion may not, may not actually be cars, but the technology and the problem-solving aspect of it, using deductive reasoning, that, that feeds me. That's what I like, and that's what I have found and what I do. So try to find what it is that makes you tick, and then... Try to find, you know, don't limit your options of what could fulfill that. And you may find out that you end up somewhere you wouldn't expect, doing something you wouldn't expect, but um, feeds that need. And then if there really isn't anything that feeds that need directly as a career, there is absolutely nothing wrong. And I, I don't like how we've taught young people, and I shouldn't even say young people because there's people my age that have been taught this, that, you know, if you find something you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life. Well, you know what? There is absolutely nothing wrong with finding something that you don't much care to do, but do it really well, get paid to do it, and then go do what you love on your free time. You know, there's really nothing wrong with working for a living. There's nothing wrong. It's really actually quite admirable to... Do the stuff that needs to get done that others don't want to do. Get paid to do it, you know, get compensated, and then be able to afford to do the stuff you love on your free time, your weekends, your vacations. Uh, I just think we've been fed a real line of BS that if you can't find something that uh, speaks to you as a career, you've somehow failed. I, it's annoying beyond uh, my ability to convey. I. I, that is something that, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm the father of two, two children that are, uh, 20, they're 21 and 23, uh, went through school and absolutely when, when they ask me my advice and you, you as a father know this, but when they ask you your opinion, I'll tell them that. I mean, it's great if you do a job you love, but whatever job you do, go at it with a work ethic that is respectable and be sure that. It is something that you you actually dedicate yourself to working. I mean, I think work ethic. Well, and, and we're about to get into a whole other podcast, but uh, oh, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but work ethic is something that is lost in a lot of individuals, and uh, it's a shame because there there is a reward 
for walking away at the end of the day and having accomplished a job. Yeah, I, I think if you're uh, you're starting anything really, but especially you know since we're in an automotive podcast, uh, automotive. If you're a young person coming into the industry and you're getting that first job, uh, I kid you not. If you show up early, stay late, do what you're told, listen, learn, get better, care, care about what you're doing, take a little bit of pride. Uh, you will progress, you will move up the ranks, and you may find yourself virtually indispensable. Um, and that's that's the truth across more than just auto repair, but uh, this industry is really, really crying for young people that can find the shop every morning because uh, evidently some struggle with that. Uh, they either forget where it is um, or haven't figured out Google Maps or Waze on their phones yet or haven't figured out the alarm clock. Um, but, yeah, you know what? Getting there early, staying late, just having that good attitude, caring about what you're doing and striving to do better and um, continually, continuously demonstrating dependability, um, you will find yourself in a position of being virtually indispensable, that they will be forced to take care of you. And if they don't, somebody else will know about you and, and will be more than happy to take care of you. I, you. You have capped off. I couldn't have scripted that any better than you've brought it. You've stated that in a way that really the young people need to hear and need to listen to that. So, Matt, I, I have dearly enjoyed our conversation, you know, and, and I've taken up a lot of your time. We, we worked to get find a time to, that we could do this, and, and I'm thankful that I did uh, and that you were accompanying and, and accommodating enough to do it. So I sincerely thank you for that. You know, you do a lot of training, I believe. Uh, we didn't even touch on that. Uh, I, I think, and this podcast will be aired a little bit after Vision, but I think you're going to be at Vision doing some training this year. I will be, yes. You know, and it, it's a shame. I, I had signed up for Jim Morton's class. He's not going to be able to make it there. Uh, so I want everybody to, uh, to, which, to remember yeah, him. Which class is that? Uh, the one on, uh, it's going to be, I think it's Saturday afternoon, the Ignition class. Uh, Rick Escalambre is yeah. going to be uh, presenting, and he's a really good presenter. Uh, he's a great guy. I've had him on the podcast. He is a great oh, guy. Oh, excellent. He's a great guy. Uh, in fact, I was fortunate enough to meet him last year at Vision. I was on the uh, education board. Oh, Think Tank. Yeah, and uh, ah, had nice. that opportunity and, and got to meet Rick and, and several people out there. Longtime acquaintance with Matt Shanahan. And, and so, I mean, it's just – Going to those type of events is is a recharge for me. Uh, looking forward to that, and maybe we can meet up and, and just briefly discuss and put a face with the name. So that would be great. Feel free to have me on here anytime. I had a blast. Oh, I think I think we we've got we've got at least three or four more topics to talk about that we brought up in this podcast. So, but I appreciate your time. I appreciate what you do for the industry. I appreciate your opinions in the industry. So I thank you for that. Uh, and again, I thank you for your time. I've taken some time away from your family and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to let you, let you go and, and maybe we can schedule some podcasts in the future. I look forward to it. Yeah, that would be great. All right, Matt. Thank you. Oh, thank you.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Technician Academy's podcast series, brought to you by Premium Guard Filters and Extend Performance. Be sure to rate us on iTunes or Google Play, and visit us online at technician.academy. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Please help us spread our Respect is Learn message by liking and sharing our content on your social media pages. Technician.academy, where respect is learned.